0: There are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the nineteen eighties. But to really understand the decade and its films, it's gonna take a couple of someone who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. I'm Drew McQueenie, and uh, as always, I'm joined by my co-hosts. Wait Scott. a minute,
1: where's the little history lesson today? My balls, you know, like do we? I don't think we did. One. Drew, I want you to fabricate some sort of history wrap-up right now. <laughs>
0: And really balls it up there we go there we go there's our whole flashback opening hi i'm drew mcwinney welcome to 80s all over i'm joined as always
1: by my host scott weinberg you can be my host in return all right fine let's jump right in if you don't know by now i'm i'm born and raised in philadelphia i've lived in austin a few times throughout my life but uh, philadelphia is my first and only home I grew up obsessed with movies that were shot in and around Philadelphia. Rocky, Mannequin, Trading Places, all the classics and everything. But I think the most impressive use of Philadelphia, on the whole, is Brian De Palma's fantastic blowout.
2: It began with a sound that no one was ever supposed to hear. He's the one of Yes, he says he pulled a girl out of the car. I would like you to forget about her.
3: just before the tire blew out. You're right, it was a shot.
2: He recorded a murder. They say it never happened. There's still loose ends, witnesses. The girl, I've decided to terminate her. Brian De Palma's blowout. Now you hear it. Now you don't.
0: I think Blowout is Brian De Palma's best movie, and I think it's also John Travolta's finest performance. He breaks my heart in this movie.
1: The movie is masterfully shot, brilliantly edited, very clever screenplay.
0: How goddamn good is their bad guy? How good is their bad guy? John
1: Lithgow, I mean, he's got like five or six scenes, and every time you see him, he's ominous and creepy. Blowout is essentially about a low budget filmmaker. He's a sound recordist, he's out in the park filming. And he hears a car coming, and then he hears a bang. The car goes into the river. He jumps into the river, Travolta, and pulls out this woman, and another man dies. Turns out he's a very important politician. She may have been there for ulterior motives beyond just uh, man-woman relations.
0: This is the perfect post-Chappaquiddick, post-JFK movie. This is the perfect thriller for an age where paranoia had kind of set in, and nobody trusted they were hearing anymore it's crazy when you look at it now because it feels very contemporary the idea that we don't believe what we see on the news we shouldn't believe it it's very easy to manipulate it's very easy to create a narrative that gets sold and to watch how heartless the wiping away of people is in order to protect a secret is what i think makes this movie stand out the human toll and blowout is, is painted on a very personal level it's got i think One of the greatest setups and punchlines in any thriller ever, where the last 10 seconds of this movie, if it doesn't land on you like a dump truck dropped off of a building, then you're just not watching the same movie I am. Uh, The first time I saw it, it destroyed me. It's so great.
1: Yeah, it's got a dark ending and then a, a twisted little denouement. You like my French? I love it. I love all the decisions that De Palma makes in this movie. I'm a huge De Palma fan. I don't love all his films. I think some of his films are half brilliant and half messy, but I think Blowout is, if not his best, easily in his top three, without question.
0: It's one of the ones where he got everything right. He just knew what he was doing. He hit the ground running. And I love that Travolta was so intimately involved with De Palma. And I think it's one of the reasons that this character really feels like a great fit for him.
1: He's playing it so laid back. He's just a normal he, there's no histrionics, there's no crazy heroism.
0: As a movie star performance goes, he's remarkably normal.
1: Yeah, he's really really good in this film and I don't in general think Travolta's that great of an actor, but if I were to point to one of his better performances or even best,
0: and Nancy Allen, it, heartbreakingly great. She's so sweet and so funny and this character could easily be played as a dumb casualty of this whole thing and there's certainly a bimbo version of the character that could be played but what Nancy Allen does so well is she keeps getting these little human moments that break through whether it's how she fins off um, the horrible advances of Dennis Franz or whether it's how she shines when she talks about her makeup work and what she wants to do in life she really brings it to life and is very very human and real
2: Tonight, an 80s all over Patreon exclusive interview with the star of Dressed to Kill, Blowout, and Robocop, Nancy Allen. And now, your hosts, Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg.
0: In in my personal opinion, I think it's the best work Travolta ever did on film, and I think a big part of that is the the way you two play off of each other in the movie. There's this wonderful sadness to it, and it really brings out strength in both of the characters. It's so different than your work in Carrie. Can you talk about him as an acting partner and the opportunity to work in such different roles with each other?
3: John is a close to as close as you can get to a perfect acting partner because he's a wonderful collaborator. He's creative. He's improvisational. Uh, he's supportive, he's just a really, he's a great partner. I first met him at the screen test for Carrie. I had actually rehearsed with Michael Talbot, who was also testing for that role. And then John walked in the room, and just the way he presented, the way he walked in the room, I thought, oh, he's getting the part. I don't know who rehearsed with him, but he's definitely getting the part. (laughs) And I will say, without saying anything besides, hi, how are you? We sat down and I, it was magic, right away we connected to one another, right away there was chemistry between us. We had a great time on that, and it was um, uh, more than a few years uh, that um, Blowout came along. I was actually out of the country, and Ron called me and he said, well, John wants to do the movie. And I said, well, that's okay, that's exciting, it's going to be interesting. And he said, I asked him, who do you see as your leading lady? And he said, I sure would love to work with Nancy again. So. That's how that came to be, and um, I was a little bit, not reluctant, but concerned that maybe he had changed, because he'd had Saturday Night fever and grease, and so many things had been happening for him, but he showed up for the first rehearsal, he walked in, we hugged, we sat down, we started to read through the material, and he said, hey, let's order a pizza, and it was like, okay, we're back, this is it, it's us, and uh, nice. yeah, it was nice.
1: We're going to move from one of the best dramatic films of the year to, in my opinion, one of the best comedies of the year. It is the absolutely adorable, venomous, sweet and sour, 9 to 5. 9 to 5 has the critics raving on overtime. Bingo. The comedy hit of the
2: season, says CBS Radio. I'm no
3: fool. I killed the boss. You think they're not gonna fire me for a thing like
2: that? Playboy magazine calls it the liveliest office party of the year. And the New York Daily News says Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, and Dolly Parton make a terrific team. 9 to 5 from 20th Century Fox, rated PG. Now playing at a selected theater near
1: you. I hope Bobby cut in the entire 9 to 5 song. As a matter of fact, Bobby, if you wouldn't mind, put in the 9 to 5 song while I'm talking right now.
0: (laughs) It's crazy because Flash Gordon, one of the most recognizable scores of the year, 9 to 5, omnipresent. You could not avoid that song that year.
1: I want to get into the social impact of this movie for a guy like me in a minute, but let's just talk about the film as as, as a movie. When did you first see it?
0: Uh, I saw it in the theater, and then when it came out on video, which was almost immediately, this is in, an important milestone. 9 to 5 was part of a push by 20th Century Fox to change the way home, re- home video release windows worked. They decided with 9 to 5, they were going to go as close to day and date as they could with theatrical release. They got it down to about eight weeks. And it was a test just to see how fast you could turn something around from the theater to home video, but it never left theaters. It was on video, but it was also still playing theaters and a monster hit. And that thing just didn't stop making
1: money. Right. And our listeners have to remember that back then, VHS was rental only.
0: Right. And it was still very new. I think if it had been like 1989 and they tried that, it would have killed the movie. But because so few people had home video at that point and had made the jump, it was still a novelty, and it was expensive, and you had to really want to go do that. Who's the funniest woman in this movie? Oh, Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton gives a movie star performance in this film.
1: Oh, she's adorable, but Lily Tomlin is owns this movie. I'm sorry. I will oh, fight interesting. I will fight you. I think Lily Tomlin is great in the film. I think Jane Fonda is very, very good in the film. Very funny, uh, unexpectedly funny, because as a kid, I vaguely knew who Jane Fonda was, and she just was, to me, she was that drama actor. Well, she she and Tomlin are perfect, because Tomlin knows how to get it out of Fonda. Look, Lily Tomlin's one of the
0: funniest performers of all time. She's an amazing actor. And I don't think of her as a comedian because I think she builds real characters from the inside out. And her work is very deep and rich. And I think she and Fonda, you see her teasing it out of Fonda in this movie. Dolly Parton is a force of nature. And I've got to imagine Colin Higgins, when he got her on set and he started to watch how she played off of the other two women, he had to be doing. Cartwheels behind the camera, he was so excited because she's great. She's a natural. Yeah, you
1: can't fake the chemistry that these three women have. The scene where they're getting stoned together, which was, by the way, a huge cultural scene for me because it
0: normalized the idea of pot use as a bonding thing.
1: This and Poltergeist made weed a little seem a little bit less creepy when I was a kid. I remember that that was it, made my parents deeply uncomfortable in the room
0: because of the fact that it was. Treated as perfectly normal and acceptable.
1: Yes, several years ago, Drew, I did a a panel at South by Southwest with uh, some people from the MPAA, and they told me, historically speaking, 9 to 5 was one of their most controversial films ever because they got a lot of complaints about the marijuana scene. This is a tricky PG. I am
0: blown away that this is a PG based on the gender politics in it, based on the insinuation of some of the stuff. When Jane Fonda's ex-husband catches Abney Coleman in the room where he's being held hostage, he's in the bondage gear, it looks like. Just that implication is a joke that I think is a little bit wild for a PG. But this was at an age where PG was considered. Your parents will talk to you afterwards if they have a problem with
1: something. If our listeners have to know anything about the rating system back then, it was that PG was pretty. You could see as long as it wasn't overtly sexual, you would see topless women in PG. You would. It was wildly elastic. It was a lot more permissive PG back then. But anyway, back to nine to five, which is a screwball Social satire about three great women who uh, are forced to struggle and suffer under a prototypical, awful, evil dickhead of a boss.
0: When they started developing it, it was something that Jane Fonda was going to make. Every version that they had was a drama, like it was a straight drama about the workplace and about inequality and about how things were having to change culturally. And it was Lily Tomlin and her producing partner who suggested to her, this is a comedy. And it makes all the difference. They can get as as political as they want in this film, and they do. I think it's overtly political in terms of gender politics, But it's all treated through this crazy cartoonish filter, and it makes it enormously palatable. I think it made that cultural conversation an easy one to have as opposed to an unpleasant one. And I think it's one of the reasons it was a hit.
1: It elevates beyond – oh, I think it's a a really good comedy with four good – Dabney Coleman, by the way. Dabney Coleman is first rate. The most Dabney Dabney Coleman Coleman. performance ever. Yeah, if you needed someone to play an insufferable chauvinistic asshole and still be kind of funny and not be so hateful that you would walk out of the theater.
2: Dabney
0: Coleman is the best. How many times over the decade after this do you think somebody said to an actor, you know, like Dabney Coleman in 9 to 5, that character type, he nails it here, and you saw people doing him
1: for the rest of the decade, like taking their cues from what he did here.
3: How about a shout out for Dabney Coleman out there? (laughs)
1: I think one of my favorite things about the movie, when I was a kid, I didn't know anything about equality in the workplace. I saw 9 to 5 as a funny comedy, probably didn't see that many comedies with women as leads, but that didn't register with me. To me, it was just another funny comedy. Throughout my young adulthood, whenever I would hear stories about how, oh, my boss at work is such a sexist pig, I think that shouldn't be happening anymore. Didn't people see 9 to 5? I honestly thought as a kid that like, oh, now that 9 to 5 is out, people could just watch that movie and learn. That's not how you treat women in the office. And of course, that's you know naive. But I like to think that na- that nine to five also instilled in me a certain respect for women that maybe my father's generation didn't get.
0: So for this one, I want to be a studio executive. And Scott, I want you to pitch me and, and don't don't give me the title. Just pitch it like you would try and sell it in the room. No. Nah. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Come in.
1: Hi, my name is Scott Weinberg. I'm an aspiring screenwriter from Philadelphia. And uh, let me just... Can I just do a little twirl before I sit down? Please. What a lovely, lovely blouse. Thank you. Uh, Anyway, I have... um, personally compromising photographs of Gabe Kaplan, Alex Karras, and Robert Klein, And I'm blackmailing them to star in this horrifically bad movie that I wrote about three mentally disabled uh, men who uh, decide that after their car is destroyed by a pothole that they're going to uh, attack City Hall and and take the mayor hostage and destroy him. Uh, It's called Nobody's Perfect, but I want to spell perfect with a K.
0: I'll say yes, but only if I can get copies of those photos.
2: Los Angeles, 2019. There was an escape from the off-world colonies. They slaughtered... The assignment? Track down six manufactured humans. He's the best man for the job. But he may die trying to prove it. Harrison Ford is...
0: This is not an easy film to love, and it's never been an easy film to love in any form. I understand that. I loved it immediately and chemically. It transported me in a way that even Star Wars didn't. I felt like I stepped into Blade Runner, and at the end of that two hours, when I stepped back out of the theater and my dad was standing outside and I had to look around and the world was still the world, I don't think I've ever been that disappointed that I wasn't still in a movie. Blade Runner is as tactile as any science fiction film ever made. And there's a reason
1: that even today, people continue to just vigorously rip it off. I did not have much of an attention span when I was a younger kid. After the first five minutes, I was so fascinated. It was one of the first science fiction films I ever saw that was like, oh, this looks a lot like the real world, but slightly askew.
0: The idea that empathy was the thing that distinguished these creatures from human beings was an idea that I still think is very esoteric. It's hard for a lot of audiences to get their head around, but it's what made the movie so beautiful to me is the notion that all these things want is that little bit more life. And the fact that they want it as much as they do, and yet they don't feel it the same way we do. That is this this great paradox at the heart of this film. The thing that haunted me and that I kept trying to explain to people that just never clicked with it the way I did was to have this bad guy, this movie bad guy, reach a moment where he could have let Deckard go. He could have gotten away. But in that moment, he realized that Deckard feels those things that he doesn't and that he couldn't let that go out, even though this guy was going to kill him.
1: It's not that these replicants are evil. It's that they
0: they're lacking what we failed to give them. I'd never seen a choice like him saving him and then explaining to him that I just, I'm so sad that all these moments I've collected die when I die. I'm so sad that all these things that I've seen go away when I die. I'd never thought of the way memory
1: defines you. And it's what you're realizing is that a man-made human now has the existential angst that we do. I love that the, the world of
0: the movie is a world where anybody who has any money, anybody who has any resources, anybody who has any ability to do so has already left Earth. Earth is dead. Earth is what's left over. Earth is the detritus. The fact that the robots come back to Earth isn't because Earth is great. It's because it's where you hide trash. And that, I thought, was haunting and sad when I was a kid, that that there are people that are never going to get off the planet, that even if we do as a species, there's going to be people that, because of whatever class they're in, are left here. That blew my mind and hurt me. Like, Blade Runner was a film that it took me a long time to really fully get my, heart, my head and my heart around because... It is a prickly, ugly, sad future, and it doesn't try to make it better, and it doesn't try to make you feel good about it. It's a really broken-hearted movie, and I still kind of can't believe a studio made it. It's also the first place where I ever really ran into the idea that style and substance are not separate things, that style can be the substance of a movie. My love-hate relationship with Ridley Scott is still ongoing. I still... Every film, we'll see. I don't know which Ridley Scott's showing up this time. What I love when Ridley is firing on all cylinders is that Ridley Scott is a guy who clearly the style is going to be there. He cannot help himself. He is a aesthetically driven artist and he will ladle the film in style, whether or not there's any meat there. And you cannot overestimate the impact that David Webb Peoples and Hampton Fancher had as writers because this screenplay... Gave Ridley room to then ladle on all the style he wanted, and he couldn't smother it. It still got smarts.
1: I think that in a lot of cases, Ridley Scott is a filmmaker who sometimes lets style overtake the the substance or the the text or the meat of the story. And I don't think in this case. I think you'd agree. In this case, he does not. The this, this screenplay is just too good. And plus, he wasn't the the Ridley Scott that he is now, which is back then he was probably more than happy to, you know, please his bosses. Nowadays, he is the boss and only has to please himself.
0: I just love that that he and and Harrison Ford still don't agree on what the movie's about. And the fact that you could do that, the fact that you could make a movie and it could be out there for 35 years and have a life this one had. And you can still have the star and the director disagree rabidly about what the movie says. That's intriguing. Uh,
1: let us now introduce our guest. He is a filmmaker. I know him mainly as his work for his work as a DVD producer, but he's also a very good director. Welcome, Charles DiLozarica. Well-pronounced. Thank you. Woo! Let me ask you this. You, aside from uh, Ridley Scott and perhaps Hampton Fancher, are maybe the world's leading Blade Runner expert. What version say. should somebody watch first?
4: Uh, first of all, let me just say I would include Paul Salmon in that list as well. But- oh, yeah. Look, if you want to do it properly, I think the version, you should watch them in chronological order of how they were released so that you can see the evolution of the, of the film and how it was sort of like stillborn and then reborn and resurrected. I mean, there's kind of like this strange Phoenix-like journey the film took. Because there was the weird home
0: video version was the first alternate version I remember with the extra violence. One of the things that I love about Blade Runner being that that is so central to who you are, Charlie, is that I feel like for guys my age and your age who grew up with Blade Runner, who saw it when it came out, who were in love with it from day one, Blade Runner has always been a movie about ephemera and different versions and the alternate cuts. All of that extra stuff was part of what I was drawn to and loved about it. Your work on it has put all of that into one central place where I can finally just hand somebody and say, look, it took me 20 years to amass what you can in one afternoon, now sit down and devour if you want to. If I was showing somebody the film for the first time, though, if you're going to show them the film, you got one shot at impressing them. And ultimately, Charlie, I think the work you guys did, yours is one of the rare cases where I would use the final cut. That's the movie to me. Whereas a lot of times I'm a purist for theatrical films, I think the theatrical Blade Runner was unfinished and a little broken. And I
4: think the final cut is the movie to me. Well, I'm glad you think that if you were to say you could only watch one version, I would say, yeah, it should be the final cut. I think of the five cuts we have in that box set, I think there's really only three that need to be studied. Final cut for sure. Uh, The work print, which I love quite a bit. It's like the punk rock version of the film. It's
1: our producer, Bobby's favorite. He loves
4: the work print. And then the kind of the in-between one is the international cut that Drew was referring to, having extra violence. The U.S. theatrical cut and the director's cut are just kind of there for completest sake. Now, Charlie, you, you were a guy who, before you made these, you were
0: probably a very early adapter of home video, and you were, I'm sure, fascinated by alternate cuts of things. And in some of these cases, you're the guy who... From day one, you were on set, and you were shooting stuff, and you got to do it from the beginning. In some cases, you might have been the third guy to ever do a home video release of something. There were a lot of releases of Alien and Aliens before you finally got to do what many people now consider the definitive collection. Can you talk about when you're picking up the baton,
4: how do you view your responsibility when a film is in your hands for the time you have it? It was interesting because the whole reason I even got to do the first the quadrilogy and then the anthology box sets was Alien 3. That's the one I really, really wanted to do because, first of all, I'm a huge David Fincher fan. Secondly, we had all heard the stories about what a tough shoot it was. and Well, the development alone. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The multiple scripts, the multiple directors different cuts of the movie, all this lost footage that there was that VHS work print that leaked out, you know, again, back in the 90s that a lot of us were circulating around. So I kind of felt like Alien 3 was the one that really needed the treatment because there was just so much there. It was almost like a Blade Runner level of backstory that I thought we really could explore. But of course, Alien 3 is not a sexy title. It was like a a year or two of going back and forth because before the quadrilogy set, Fox wanted me to do, you remember the old five-star collection? Definitely. So they wanted a five star of Alien. And I said, well, not to turn a job away, but I said, isn't there enough content already on the shelf that you can just like put this out as a five to set? You don't need me to do anything. But they kept coming back to me and I kept saying, well, how about Alien 3? And they'd say, ha, ha, ha. And then that conversation went on for like probably two years till finally I got the call again about Alien 5 Star. And I said, how about Alien 3? And they said, how about you do all four? And, you know, I, I kind of dropped the phone. I was like, wow, be careful what you
1: wish for. Our next film, Drew, let's spend some time talking about Gary Sherman's fantastic Dead and Buried.
2: From the creators of Alien, terror brought down to Earth, dead and buried. Is there any way whatsoever to reanimate people after they have died? Dead and buried. It will take your breath away. Buried. All of it. Dead and Buried, rated R.
0: Gary Sherman is a guy that I'm excited that we get to talk about on this podcast because I don't think he has the body of work to really support him being treated as part of the pantheon, but I think he had all sorts of great ideas as a filmmaker. I think he was really effective a few times, and I think he was always trying.
1: Dead and Buried is one of the best horror films of the decade.
0: I think it's certainly one of the most interesting. I think it is ambitious. I think it is original. I think it does its own thing. You want to talk about a, a movie where the structure is unusual. This is a very odd movie. It's built very weird. The way the horror scenes happen, they're not even really conventional horror scenes. One of the most terrifying things that happens is a, a flash keeps going off.
1: That whole that whole sequence of there's a guy on the beach and he's photographing a woman he just met. And I don't even want to spoil the, the shock in this scene, even though it's the opening scene. Who's that actress, by the way? That is Lisa Blount. She's the best. There's also the lovely Melody Anderson, uh, plays the wife of James Farentino, the sheriff who is delving into a series of mysterious murders. Best in, work uh, James Farentino's ever done. Ever done. Uh, best movie he's ever been in. Well, maybe not. I would. I would say so. And I think he's great in it. Great supporting performance by Jack Albertson from, from, from oh, Willy Jack Wonka. Jack Albertson's awesome. As, a, as an undertaker who is probably up to no good, but we're not exactly sure how not good. If I ever meet Farentino, I just want to talk to him about the last 15 minutes of this film. His work is so great and he nails it. The fun part about Dead and Buried is that it is not generally discussed very much, but among horror fans who've seen it and know the 80s, This is a very well-regarded little film, and I I hope that we are able to turn some people on to Dead and Buried. Uh, Our plot synopsis on this one was a little bit light because, well, A, there's not a lot of plot to it, and B, even divulging much of the characters and much of the plot would be giving up some of the discovery. Rude,
0: very rude. It's a movie that you should watch as cold as you can if you haven't seen it before. Exactly, and... And, uh, Scripted by Ron Shussett and Dan O'Bannon coming off of Alien, although O'Bannon later said that basically... The only way this was getting made if they both had their names on it because of Alien and that it was Shussett that was the real creative force on on this one and Shussett who it was his story and really he was the one that kept pushing to get it made. O'Bannon said it was basically for him just, all right, fine, I'll put my name on it too and we'll get it made for you. That's great because it is definitely a writer's movie. There is a such a sense of pleasure to the way this script is built and you get the sense that Gary Sherman understood
1: immediately what an opportunity that was and exactly how to nail the big moments there's not like one superfluous scene in this movie it's, it's very efficient I, I i don't want to even talk about it anymore i want i want people to see dead and buried and get back to us later
0: now the other film
1: that you and i are both talking around right now never came out theatrically this never it's, got a theatrical release but it is so special we do need to mention roar
3: you are not going to kill those cats you can tell me what you're gonna do and you can tell me what the rest of this committee is gonna do but I'll be damned if you're going to tell
2: me what I'm going to do.
3: That's why you have to help. I can go on any property to kill animals that I deem are a danger to human life. I'm telling you, there'll be no killing of cats, elephants, or any animals ever again.
4: We can't keep exterminating everything that we fear that inconveniences us. Let the zoos keep them alive.
0: Roar is a work of terrorism. Think of the scene in Roar where they first get to the house and they're just being chased around the house room to room, situation to situation by those lions for what feels like a half an hour, maybe 40
1: minutes in the middle of the film. Oddly enough, Roar is a fascinating bad film relic. And it is available. It was re-released by Draft House. It is, uh, I believe, available as a DVD from Olive Films. And the irony is, Roar never got a North American theatrical release at all, but has been, like, celebrated in the last few years as a cult item. Savage Harvest did get a theatrical release, and it's infinitely more obscure than Roar.
0: Well, the difference is Savage Harvest looks like it was made by people who did their best to keep their actors safe. Roar is the work of a lunatic, just a fucking lunatic who said, "Um, just get in front of the camera. We'll see what happens and then stuff happens. Terrible stuff happens all through that movie. Roar Roar is traumatic. It is such a crazy theatrical experience. You can't help but look at how safe everything is in Savage Harvest and just realize look, that's the difference is once in a lifetime you'll get a movie where somebody makes it and throws caution to the wind and puts something on film that feels dangerous and real and I would never sanction a production like Roar, but holy shit, I'm happy I have it on Blu-ray. (laughs) <laughs> um, our next one is a, another entry in the 80s demolition derby of charming drunks. Scott, what did you make of Reuben Reuben? Colin Evans McGland
2: is a poet with uh, quite a reputation.
3: Well, doesn't it bother you that you're almost as well-known as a womanizer? as You are a poet.
2: No, no, no. What bothers me is that neither pays
1: very well. Hundreds of women loved him, but she understood him. Ruben Ruben, I thought it was stupid, stupid.
0: (laughs) Here's my experience with Ruben Ruben. I'm watching it. And first of all, Tom Conti as an asshole, just say it, uh, just an asshole. He's just a drunken Scottish wrecking ball who is famous because he's a poet. And all he does is roll around, fuck up other people's marriages, have sex with people, get pissed drunk in public. And then he falls in love with someone. And that's supposed to be redeeming in some way over the rest of the film. That wears thin early on, and then the movie kind of rolls along, and you wonder, okay, where are we going with this thing? And it takes a left turn in the last 14 seconds that is so dramatic that I felt like I got pranked. Like, you like you cut the film just to see what my reaction would be, because there's no fucking way that's how Ruben Ruben ends, man.
1: It is the way. It is a no, reasoned. And I watch it and I'm like, okay, yeah, this is definitely based on a play because that's (laughs) – and then I realized, oh, that play is based on a book. Literary irony of the highest uh, esteem or import. It's so up its own ass. It's just crazy where this movie goes, uh, Ruben Ruben feels like somebody watched Arthur and said – let's do that, but let's go a lot darker with the ending. Imagine imagine if you're watching Arthur and at the end of it, John Gielgud goes, I'll be
0: right back. I'm going to go fix your tea. And Arthur goes, great. And John Gielgud walks in the other room and Arthur grabs a gun and
1: Now we're gonna switch gears with a comedy that in some ways is better than it was back then, and in other ways has not aged all that well. In the next
2: 48 hours, Nick Nolte, a cop, I'm the type. and Eddie Murphy, a con, <laughs> have got to outshoot, outsmart, What's happening, Luther, outrun, and outlive the men thereafter. They're not having a great time together. Same by night. And all the time they've got is 48 hours. Y'all be cool. Rated R. Let's set the stage here.
0: This was Christmas time. There were giant movies out. And the giant movie stars that Christmas were Burt Reynolds, Peter Sellers, Clint Eastwood, Richard Pryor. Those were the giant movie stars who were working. In the midst of all this, Paramount takes a shot on a kid who is starting to build buzz on television. And a character actor who they had been working
1: with and trying to push over as a movie star and had had very little luck with. Everybody who's listening to this, picture when you were 14 or 15 and there was just one comedian, no matter what they did, that's all your friends would talk about in school. That guy was Eddie Murphy when he did Mr. Robinson's Neighborhood, when he did that bit where he dressed up as a white guy and went on the bus. And our parents didn't get it. He wasn't for them. They didn't know what was going on. 48
0: Hours came out and it was like a nuclear bomb went off. And he ate all the other movie stars that Christmas Alive.
1: Now, it's pretty raw. It's pretty violent for a comedy. And it's pretty uh, funny for an action movie. But it's got some racial themes. It's got some sexist themes. It's got some stuff that we look at now and go, ooh. There's two very different issues
0: going on in this movie. The race stuff, I think, is aged great because it is edgy, uncomfortable, and it is angry. And it should be. There's nothing about it that is meant to be comfortable. The way Jack Cates talks, Jack Cates is a piece of
1: shit, and he is an unmitigated, unrepentant That's what I like about when I was a kid. I thought this guy was supposed to be like your TV cop hero. He's not. At best, he's an anti-hero, but he's also a dick. I think Eddie Murphy comes in so hot, so
0: angry. And then there's that scene in the bar, which is the birth of a movie star. You see him walk into that bar, Eddie Murphy, and he walks out the biggest movie star on the planet. And that scene is all about race and acknowledging that tension. Where I think the movie stumbles is anything involving an Ed O'Toole's character. They never knew what they were doing with that. The movie
1: wipes its ass with her and then moves on. Foreign, and she's easily the biggest female character in yeah, the
0: movie. And she's the only one that really registers. And it's a shame because I love Annette O'Toole. I'm certainly down for seeing her in the middle of this kind of movie. But there's nothing going on that's written for her. And she's treated like dog
1: food. It's awful. You can watch an old film that has a few wrinkles that make you go, "Ooh, don't really appreciate that. And still appreciate the art for the era in which it was made.
0: And everything else about this movie is terrific. The action is bone-crunching. And Walter Hill, who was still at this point not a season-season filmmaker. He was a writer who had finally moved into directing and was building his style and his reputation. And this movie was such a commercial monster that it bought him the rest of the decade.
1: Yeah, and by many accounts, this was a troubled production. I know it was originally... Clint Eastwood and Richard Pryor to star together. Uh, our friend who did an interview with us, Stephen D'Souza, was one of the credited writers on the film. There were apparently uh, personality clashes and troubles on the shoot. And if you are not a Patreon subscriber,
0: well, here's a little hint of it, and you should probably subscribe because it's awesome.
2: So anyway, uh, there was a my contract was off for renewal, and I developed enough of a reputation that time, so Paramount said come over here and we'll get you in the movie business. Uh, so I go to meet Larry Gordon for the first time, At this time Joel Silver is like an assistant uh, for him. And this is the first time he's gonna get a credit on anything besides assistant. He's gonna get like, he had an associate producer credit, I think on the Renegades pilot. Larry uh, said to me, listen, we have the script we've been trying to make for years now. And we like what you did on the Renegades where you brought uh, comedy and action together. And this was 48 hours. And the script had been around so long that the original plan was that the burned-out middle-aged cop was going to be Robert Mitchum, and the young hoodlum he has to get out of prison was going to be Clint Eastwood.
0: Oh <laughs> my God, oh my God! Can it's I take good. a moment to just dream about? What well, that yeah, uh,
1: let's like. let's absorb what that forty-eight hours would look like. <laughs> so, so that that would have been the
2: version that would have been shot in nineteen sixty-nine. Good lord! They right. already decided they wanted to get Eddie Murphy, who was already on Saturday Night Live. Uh, so there was a story going around for for a while that. I rewrote the script in 48 hours, which is, like, too perfect. Uh, I did not. But what I did was come up with ideas to, like, you know, make it more inventive. Waterhill is kind of a very uh, straightforward, beaten potatoes guy. I, I would say to him sometimes, isn't that kind of a cliche? He'd say, when I do it, it's not a cliche. It's an archetype. So what was
1: he I, like? Was he was he daunting, intimidating? Was he, was, uh, well, was I'll he tell like you
2: to- what he was like. After they decided to hire me, uh, they say, come to a meeting uh, in uh, Michael Eisner's office. So I go into the meeting and Walter Hill's there. Now, what I don't know at this time, I'm totally clueless on, you know, Hollywood politics. The original script was written by Roger Spottiswood. The script that I got had been rewritten by Walter Hill. So I don't realize that, like, they're hiring me to rewrite Walter Hill because they don't like, they don't want to shoot the, his script. He was not Walter, capital Water Walter Hill yet. This is trying to be an urban comedy. This is like a new thing for him. Right. So uh, this is where I meet him in the room. And they say Steve is one of the Steve is a talented young writer. He's uh, saved our ass just recently on another cloud. And they said, well, uh, uh, what's, what has he done that I've seen? Uh, well, Steve's a television writer. A television writer? <laughs> Have a television writer rewrite me? And they say, well, he's not rewriting you. He's here to help you. Just, you know, bring some, like, you know, he's got a lot of, like, fun, youthful ideas he ran by us. You know, he, he needs your help. You can be a mentor to him. He hasn't done a feature. And what, what he'll give you stuff and you'll make it better. There's no reason this movie, if we get this Eddie Murphy, he's naturally funny. There's no reason this movie can't be as successful as, as. and he looks around the room and for some reason seizes upon the poster that's on the back of his door for a stir crazy. Richard Pryor is in a chicken suit. So he says, this is your model. And Hill walks out, slams the door so hard that the stir-crazy poster falls off the door, (laughs) onto the floor, and the glass shatters. That's called symbolism, right? (laughs) Anyway, about the third or fourth day of me writing this script and turning in, I get a phone call from Joel Silver, and he says, I want you to come over to Larry Gordon's office. Don't tell anyone where you're going, including your secretary. If you run into Walter, don't say anything to him. Tell him you're going to the cafeteria. So I go over to Larry Gordon's office, and Katzenberg and Eisner are there, which is very unusual. And they say, I want you to look at these pages here and tell us what you think of them. So it's three piles of pages I sent to the print shop. So I start to look at it and I go, well, yeah, these are the pages I said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. And I realize this has all changed back. Everything I did has been taken out. And they all look and say, uh-huh, exactly what we thought. It's okay, from now on, Steve, you do not send your pages to the print shop. You call Joel's office, And his secretary will come and get them. And what was going on was Walter was rewriting my stuff before anybody even saw it. He was so anti-comedy. And when I'd be in meetings with him, you know, uh, he used to take out a a collection of knives. And like when the conversation got heated, he would play with his knives. He also had baseball bats that were autographed by baseball stars. And he liked to walk around the office swishing them over my head. Uh, Right after this picture got made, 48 hours, uh, Larry, Joel, and Walter made Uh, Streets of Fire. What happened as that movie got together, Larry Gordon looks in Variety one day, and it says that Joel Silver and Walter Hill are making a movie called Streets of Fire at Universal Studios. So Larry, who has a a stuffed piranha on his desk, and a little sign that says, the only thing tougher than the Jew that got out of Auschwitz is the Jew that got out of Mississippi. So he calls up Joel and basically says, "Uh, Joel, this announcement about this movie Which is like one week after we premiered Forty Eight Hours. It seems to me the only way you and Walter could have cooked up that movie would have been on my payroll, on my set. So I think there's a mistake in that press release. I'm sure you're one of the (laughs) you're going to want to fix before my lawyers fix it. So what they did is they said it's all the same people that made Forty Eight Hours, except it wasn't. I wasn't there, so the movie tanked. I go to the Christmas party and Joel says, listen, I should have called you back. Uh, I was wrong. Uh, Walter, it was Walter. He made me do it. He, you know, we were doing the other movie with him. And like, I couldn't do it. He, he, he would have known I called you back from the set. When the movie came out, it tanked. You know, so uh, you know. let's just put it aside. I want to make another movie with you. You know who Arnold Schwarzenegger is? Albie Sherman has problems
1: Say, this place? More than 10
2: people at one time And there's no room to breathe He's got problems you can't believe My Albie is the politest boy in this family Albie doesn't like problems in his life Buy a restaurant for dumping one board And taking up with another one. Oh my god, what an uncle well, You know I love you, isn't that enough? No. Over the Brooklyn Bridge, a film by Menachem Golan, with Elliot Gould, Bert Young, Margot Hemingway, Bert Young, Sid Caesar, Bert Young, Shelley Winters, and Bert Young. Bert Young. Bert Young.
0: Oh my God, I'm so happy.
1: Bert Young looks like an angel was born (laughs) fully adult and hairy. Bert Young looks like a boiled sloth in this film. I will say that Bert Young occasionally seems to realize how generic and drab and pointless this movie is and weirds up his performance at moments where it's literally the only interesting thing on the screen at some point.
0: You're right. God bless him. Burt Young, you are a terrific character actor, but part of why he was a terrific character actor is because... He looked like someone dropped a meatball in an
1: ashtray. Oh yeah yeah, we no no disrespect, but the guy looked like a sweaty trash collector and there's nothing by all You looked like Jean you know, Charlot's balls. I'm sure he was a sweet guy, but that's part of what he was cast for as like a kind of an oily deceptive person. The unpredictability of Burt Young is literally the only thing that kept me afloat. Well, that and I had to watch it for this fucking podcast. Burt Young always looks like he smells like ham. Wet ham. Burt Young looks like he's going for the world record sweating record.
0: Yeah. Burt Young looks like he hasn't slept since 1953.
1: Burt Young looks like a fairy turned a mushroom into a man.
0: <laughs> I owe Burt Young so many fucking apologies. Like, no doubt. Until I actually heard all of the dunks in
1: a row, yeah. I had not felt bad. Now,
0: Now maybe I feel bad.
1: I did correct it. Burt Young is still with us. I said was, uh, and it made it sound like he was the late Burt Young. But thankfully, he is still with us. So I apologize for that.
0: Oh, boy. Uh, Yeah, that's going to be a great bonus episode. when We finally get him on and apologize for an hour. Um. Uh, You know what? Here's the thing.
1: (laughs) I'm pretty sure Burt Young has a mirror, dude.
0: (laughs) Burt Young looks like a pile of mashed potatoes just hit puberty.
1: Bert Young See, I'm trying to make mine a little bit nicer <laughs> now. Bert Young looks like a limited edition garbage pail kid that was very difficult to find. <laughs> Bert Young looks like a werewolf with mange. <laughs> All right, well <laughs> we now need to start delineating between the two different types of Bert Young performance. The Bert Young where he's eating something and Bert Young where he's not eating something. And I much prefer the former. To the latter, Because when Burt Young is eating, he does this business with his hands and he, he has to chew before he can say, get the fuck out of here. I know we always say that, you know, he looks like Winnie the Pooh was shaven and dumped in a honey jar. Oh! I know we always say he looks like a meatball that rolled around on the floor for a month. Oh! But, and I say this with all sincerity now. I fucking love Burt Young. I love him in this. He's in one scene in this movie and he's oh, great. Yeah.
0: And in that one scene, it's hard to tell where the plate of meatballs and spaghetti ends and he begins, but it's fine. It's completely fine. He's great, and I agree with you. Both movies he shows up in this month are better for him being in them. Our next movie is arguably one of the most significant films of the decade. Arguably, arguably, Not just one of the biggest hits of all time, but culturally, this became everything for the summer of 1982. Let's get into E.T. the Extraterrestrial and his adventures on Earth.
1: this is a movie for kids and adults but this is a movie for kids that is not afraid to be sad like Bambi like old Yeller like a lot of classic family films that dip their toe into mortality and sadness and dealing with trauma absolutely beautiful I mean it works great as an adventure story it works great as a character study about a young boy it's like you know works as a comedy it works as a lot of different things this movie is
0: mercenary in how it manipulates the audience and i'm and i'm not saying that as a bad thing it is enormously effective it knows exactly what it's doing in every moment and when it decides it's going to break your heart it breaks your heart i probably saw et in the theaters 20 25 no times oh
1: way come on i lived within walking distance of a theater and i think i saw it six times i i can't explain the way i used to see movies but did it by like the 10th time didn't your brain just say I know every line. I know every what I'm saying
0: is one of the reasons that I went so many times was I got to the point where I would take people who hadn't seen it, whether it be aunts or uncles, or things like that, so that I could watch them watch it. For me, watching people watch E.T. was educational because you learned how certain beats played universally for people. And it wasn't until I was older that I really understood the connection to the original James Berry Peter Pan play where you have the whole thing where Tinkerbell dies and he would ask the kids in the audience, you have to applaud now and if you applaud enough, Tinkerbell will come back to life. And it would get kids so emotionally involved that they would need Tinkerbell to come back to life and they would applaud until their hands hurt. E.T. has that beat built into it.
3: Phone. Home. 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 Does this mean coming
2: yes.
0: ah! although we weren't applauding and nobody was telling us what we had to do when people broke and started sobbing in the theater that was that moment where all of us were having the same exact emotional charge And then he would come back to life. And to watch that play to a crowd over and over, I learned everything about how drama affects people, about how movies and music and cutting and the performance all comes together to make this thing that you can just put it into any room. And people who have a million movies they've seen and people who have seen three movies are still going to have the same emotional sort of bombshell reaction. It was remarkable to watch how effective it was
1: yeah, and, and it just cemented Spielberg as the guy who can do it all. I mean, the stuff with D. Wallace, how was she not nominated for this movie, Drew? How is D. Wallace not nominated? I'm sorry, I'm getting angry.
0: <clears throat> D Wallace in this movie is one of the great screen divorcees. She's a woman who is struggling to hold things together and the relationship she has with the children and not just her children, but the children from the neighborhood.
1: That bit where he says they're nothing alike penis breath, and she's laughing and shocked at the same moment. One of the best moments I've ever seen a person act with a child. She is wonderful. Drew Barrymore, her reaction to E.T. makes the film infinitely less ridiculous.
0: That's the thing, man. E.T. barely works as a a technical trick. I think E.T. is held together by scotch tape and prayer. It is amazing that we buy the performance as much as we do. And it's because of those kids, man, they sell it. They make us believe in him because they believe in him. And whether it's Barrymore sobbing or whether it's Elliot playing with action figures with him to explain what star Wars is and things, the kids are so relentlessly real that after a while, you have to buy this rubber thing as alive because they
1: invest it with that E.T., is not only one of the best films of the decade, it is one of the best films I've ever seen about friendship, about loss, sticking up for your brothers and sisters, literally. And and it's not even my
0: favorite Spielberg film. It's kind of a miracle we never got a sequel to it, and I'm
1: really glad that they never bothered. Oh, I have a feeling that that Spielberg's got his foot on that door going, no, no, no.
0: The closest they came was the ride that they put in out here at uh, Universal. And when I was a tour guide, the ride you would go to his planet with him and you would go through and you'd ride around his planet at the very beginning of the ride when you went in you were supposed to say your name to et as you went by and then if you timed it right and it should work out then as you come out et waves and he says your name to buy dude when we were studio guides our favorite thing was to lean in and say wrong names to et as people's cars were going by so they would get to the end and we go goodbye shithead It was so much fun, and we got in so much trouble for
1: it. All right, well, uh, I'm walking into your office. You're sitting at your desk. <clears throat> uh, hi, I, uh, I represent Steven Spielberg and Universal Pictures. We want to use M&M's candy in our upcoming film. Uh, it's called E.T., and it's about a creature that befriends a young boy, and we need a candy that kids know. We want it to be something comfortable and friendly and warm and familiar. So we want Elliot to feed M&M's to the alien and we think the movie's going to strike a chord we think it'll be a decent hit so what do you think
0: you want a monster to eat our candy on screen
1: no he's not he's can a I, can i see a pic
0: can i see a picture of the monster
1: we don't have all right here
0: he literally looks like he's been pooped out of another monster i do not believe i want to see him eating Sir, our product have you, thank you
1: seen 1941 no, I'm I've, getting am getting a page on my 1982 pager. It says that oh, the Reese's peanut butter cup people just made a candy that looks just like yours. So I think I'll go across the street and offer them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> apparently they're called that, sir. they're called Reese's parts, I think, and they're going to be huge. So f you, M Mars, bye bye, and see. Thank. That is what happened at M and Mars. Goodbye, shithead. Now we're going to move on to a very easily one of the most controversial films of the 1980s. Do you want to see something really scary?
2: This summer, four acclaimed directors, George Miller, John Landis, Joe Dante, and Steven Spielberg, take you to another dimension.
0: Uh, there's no way to start talking about this film uh, without acknowledging up front that, yes, this changed the landscape because of what happened behind the scenes.
1: You can't really discuss Twilight Zone, the movie, without discussing the horrible accident that occurred on set directed by John Landis, a, a helicopter accident killed actor Vic Morrow and child actors Micah Din Lee and Renee Shin Yi Chen. Although I do admire John Landis very much reading about this story, Drew, I cannot fathom how everybody was acquitted on that.
0: One of the reasons people were acquitted was because some of them left the country. And I am a great admirer of the film career of Frank Marshall. But there's a reason that Frank Marshall and Steven Spielberg didn't set foot in the country between the day after that accident and 85 And it wasn't just because Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom was shooting overseas. They were very careful not to be here. Landis carried the weight of this and still does. And I have had several instances in my life where I've been around Landis and this has come up. I've never heard Landis dismiss the weight of what happened ever. I've never heard him downplay it or say that it wasn't a big deal or that it wasn't his fault or that he, there's no movie that should ever cost a human life ever. Before this film, there was a recklessness to John Landis and it had followed him from film to film. And there were stories about Blues Brothers. There were stories about, you know, stunts that he did on films where he just kind of didn't give a shit because he loved the way it looked. Obviously, that changed. And everything about John Landis had to change after this. When we were working on Masters of Horror, He was up doing prep for his episode, which was going to shoot after us. He was walking around the sound stages one day, and there was a teamster sitting there reading the book, Outrageous Conduct, about the helicopter accident, about the entire incident, just reading it openly while John's walking back and forth. And John noticed it. And the guy was making sure John noticed it. And John didn't say anything. And then finally, about the third time he walked by, the guy cleared his throat and said, hey, John, i was wondering, would you sign this for me? Mm. The balls on him kind of blew my mind. John's reaction, John stopped and he said, look, man, I really don't appreciate that. And and he kind of explained to him where he was coming from, which is, look, I've, I've had to deal with this for a long time. You really don't know anything beyond the book you're holding. So I don't know why you're going to bother me about it, but it's not appropriate. And I really don't appreciate it. And the guy went, cool, but seriously, would you sign it? And then John lost his mind and left at a grindhouse screening when Planet Terror was playing John Landis is sitting two rows in front of me at an early press screening. And there's that scene where they fly the helicopter through the zombies and they tilt it down to cut zombie heads off. And people started to turn to stare at him. It drove it home to me that he carries that with him everywhere and that no matter what he does or where he goes, it's a constant reminder. So anybody who thinks he got off light.
1: I don't think he got off light, but I think that if he carries that guilt with him every day, that's appropriate.
0: I think it's appropriate. I don't know that it's appropriate for other people to keep handing it to him. And then on top of it, it's not a very good segment. Can you imagine having to finish your movie? Because when this by the time this film came out, obviously, this had been such a big conversation and it had been such a big incident that it kind of redefined. Uh, for a lot of these guys, what kind of films they would make and how they would work and w- what their careers would be after this. But Twilight Zone still had to come out. And there was even the question of would they include it? And then they decided to. And
1: I still don't know that that's the right choice.
0: It makes this movie a weird monument to that maybe you should have just left it out
1: of course none of the footage including the children was used they rewrote the whole segment and i think to the shorts detriment because it just kind of ends on a really down note and it's not a very interesting note but twilight zone is a mixed bag very fair you know what else Uh, is a mixed bag
0: oh i don't know if i agree with you i think this might just be a bad bag just say what what
1: the superman franchise
0: Oh, yes, you are correct. And here's why. I don't think I've ever gotten more tweets from people defending something before we talked about it, where I am. I'm sorry, but your childhood is wrong.
1: (laughs) Your childhood is wrong. Say it again.
0: (laughs) Your childhood is so wrong. If you are still defending this movie to me or giving this movie any slack. No, this is a terrible terrible movie. Full stop. It is a terrible Superman movie. It is a terrible Richard Pryor movie.
1: What's your response to this? Well, Superman 3 is still better than Superman 4.
0: Okay. A bullet in the foot is better than a bullet in the head. It's still a bullet in your body. I don't want to get shot anywhere and Superman 3 is definitely an open sucking wound.
2: Alexander Salkheim presents Christopher Reeve and Richard Pryor. Uh, Watch the tree. as you've never seen them before with more action more twists you're going to go down in history as the man who killed superman uh, no. and more fun oh i'm sorry than superman has ever had before <laughs> Superman
1: 3, rated PG, starts Friday, June 17th. All right, where do we begin? Let's start with that opening title sequence. Let's start where they started. No, 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 let's save that. Look, what I want you to <laughs> give, give our listeners, if you would, a little background on Donner, Donner, and Lester, and then Lester.
0: Uh, yeah, okay, so here's the math problem that we're facing in the Superman franchise. Superman 1, largely successful, because it's almost entirely Richard Donner. Superman 2... Mixed bag. There's a lot of really good Superman 2. There's some terrible Superman 2. There's Richard Donner's Superman 2, and there's Richard Lester Superman 2, and they're all mixed up together. It's chocolate and Miracle Whip. So this third one is 100 percent Miracle Whip. It's just that. And it's all Richard Lester. And Richard Lester doesn't just hate Superman. Richard Lester misunderstands every appealing thing about Superman fundamentally.
1: There is not one comedic beat in this film that works, not Ooh. one. And nope. it all, as Drew mentioned, the stage is set with this interminable opening credit sequence. With is, uh, I, I don't get what we're looking at here. What are we watching?
0: I feel like the entire film would play a little bit better if you just, on the soundtrack, just put a constant fart sound for the entire film, because that's what it is. It's just a slow-release fart. A lot of superhero films early on, because you really didn't have the money or the technology to get super-powered fights right... They would take the powers away from the superhero, or they would make the superhero fight himself in some way, or and this movie commits all those sins in one. they take his powers away for a big chunk of the film, so he 's asshole Superman, and then once he 's done being asshole superman it 's resolved by him having a ridiculous metaphorical fight with himself in a junkyard. <laughs> It's nonsense. I, I get that it's staged well, and this is the argument that, that I keep getting from people that, that, you know, there's people who, oh, there's this moment in the film where the, the woman turns into a robot and it really traumatized me as a child. All right, first of all, Cupcake, you were a little tender because that's not scary. I know there's a lot of scary stuff from the 80s that we saw as kids. That is a ridiculous beat in the middle of a ridiculous sequence, and if that traumatized you, you, were,
1: you saw it too young because it's not scary. There's other red flags too. Tell the story about how Rich Pryor got involved in a superhero movie. Uh I, he owed Coke money? Um th- No I, I thought I could have sworn I remembered the anecdote how he mentioned on the Tonight Show that he loved Superman. What do you go to what do you go to see?
2: Pictures of what kind? You you go to these comedies mainly?
1: Oh, I want to see Superman two. Superman two. That's my
5: that's what I'm waiting on to see. Really? Huh? Yeah. So did you see Superman one? Sure. Well this one, you know, remember the was in the glass? Yeah. Where well, he goes and gets them. Yeah. And brings them back to Earth accidentally. And there's four Supermans. I didn't know that. Yeah, and a one Superwoman. Oh, it's going to be good. The
1: previews are great. We've said in the theater, yeah, it's soup! <laughs> we'll be right back. And the yeah, Salt Times reached out and said, we want you to be in a Superman movie, and they wrote it around him.
0: It's funny, I was talking, before we went on the air, I was talking with Bobby, uh, our producer, and he made the comparison between this film and... Uh, Star Trek four, which Star Trek four, if you know, the backstory on that was developed as a earthbound time traveling story so that Eddie Murphy could be in it. And he was going to be the Catherine Hicks character. And that whole thing was designed so that Eddie Murphy, who was a rabid Star Trek fan who told Paramount, I want to be in Star Trek could be in a Star Trek movie. Thankfully, somebody at Paramount realized that's crazy and didn't let it happen. And somebody at Warner Brothers clearly didn't give a shit and said, Richard Pryor's got bills. Let's go ahead and put him in Superman three. And his character is I'm sorry, it's a garbage character. He's a guy who at the beginning is having an argument in the unemployment office because he can't get work anywhere and then they put him in front of a computer, and within a day, he has not only become the world's preeminent computer programming genius, but he has designed a program that will siphon money out of bank accounts, little half pennies, and make him a millionaire, which draws the attention of the film's big bad guy, who then puts him to work as a criminal hacker mastermind for him. What The hell movie am I watching? Let me just say, as a 13 year old sitting in a theater watching 25 minutes of Richard Pryor unemployment shtick, where Superman hasn't shown up yet, I remember thinking, what
1: lunatic made this film? If they had real respect for Richard Pryor, why not let him play the villain? Yeah, Robert Vaughn.
0: I feel like his agents had a running bet to see if they could keep him from ever being in a good film.
1: It's clear that in many ways, Superman 4 is worse. It's cheaper, it's chintzier, it's dumber. But when I look that this still had some Warner Brothers backing and it still had some sheen of legitimacy, this sequel is almost worse because it didn't have to be.
0: This is just an unconscionable movie. I can't believe there was ever a point where there's a studio that owned a property as big and as successful and as iconic as Superman that made the decision This was the story they had to tell next. Out of all the Superman stories that have been told by 1983, really? This is why for so long, we're going to talk about the horrible fantasy films this decade and why fantasy was considered just a garbage genre for so long. This is why superhero movies were a joke and almost impossible to get somebody to commit to of any real pedigree. You either had to overpay them or you had to pray to God they love this stuff. For me, Superman three, I I, the reason it hurt so much was because I knew there was nothing better around the corner. It's not like there were other superhero franchises to go watch.
1: True. It's so true. You have your kids watch something like uh even a good one, even like something like Willow, you'd be like, it's like showing somebody an airplane from 1910 and going, you flew in that, you know, like <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, we flew in that. Um, <laughs> all right. Our next film is a true classic of the decade. I was not a big fan of the source material before I saw this film. And then after I saw them film, I was a junkie for Star Trek 2, the wrath of God. A scientist
2: discovered it.
1: We're talking about Universal Armageddon.
2: A madman stole it. I mean to avenge myself upon you, Admiral. An admiral pursued it. And it warped speed in three minutes, so we're all dead. They all wanted it. They're on a build up to detonation. Now, huh? none can escape it. Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, rated PG.
0: My mom came to school to pick me up one day, unannounced. And there was no reason. She didn't tell me what was going on. She told the school we were going to the doctor. And instead, she took me to lunch. And then we went and we saw Star Trek 2 on opening day. And it was fucking awesome. I was suspicious of Star Trek to some degree, because I liked the original series on TV. And I, I kind of thought of it as hand in hand with Twilight Zone. Like they were social issue shows couched in genre. Star Wars was my real love. I was uh, Our
1: generation thought Star Wars was fun and Star Trek was a little starchy and dry.
0: My mom was the one that that really was advocating for Star Trek being awesome. And so I think both of us that day walked out feeling differently about Star Trek, like really excited by the future of Star Trek. And that's what Star Trek Two gave back to Star Trek fans was the idea that there is a future
1: for this thing that you it's love. So much fun. Star Trek Two is just a great space adventure. You will get to know those characters, but even if you don't know them, it works as a standalone three-act adventure movie. And Drew, talk about the importance of bringing in new blood into an established system because Nicholas Meyer who saved this franchise
0: nicholas Meyer and Harve bennett as a production unit came in and kind of they really didn't know what to do after the motion picture the fact that they stripped this down and they started making it as a tv movie says everything it is a film that won its way back onto the big screen what happened was they they realized that when you have kirk spock and bones you have the perfect storytelling unit and montalban understood that this was for him a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and not many people ever gave Ricardo Montalban the chance to play this kind of role. And again, you want to talk about representation, about things that could or couldn't happen. For Hollywood not to realize what he was when he was in his prime, when he was younger and beautiful, and he could have played 15 to 20 years of this stuff, it's a real shame. It's a real mistake on their part, because clearly Montalban was a beast. And if you gave him something to do, the guy was on fire. Dude, he is suave. He is Built like a brick shit house. Who else are you going to throw against Shatner? Because it's not that like you're dealing with a shrinking lily of a uh, actor. You got to you got to go toe to toe with that. He did. I'll also say that this movie has a very special place in my heart. It is the first time I ever saw a movie make Toshi cry. Champ
3: Out of danger.
2: Yes. Don't grieve, Admiral. Just logical. The needs of the many. Outweigh the means of the few
3: or the one. Uh, Toshi's like gateway movie
0: was the J.J. Abrams Star Trek and Speed Racer. That was the year that he kind of fell in love with movies. So Star Trek was important to him. And when they sent the Blu-rays out that year, we went through. This is actually where Film Nerd 2.0 began, was writing about him watching the Star Trek movies with me. The only time I saw him cry that hard for a death in a movie in that same era was when Godzilla died in the nineteen fifty four film. So
1: That's weird. You're got a weird kid. That
0: lets you know where Toshi's heart was, man. He he couldn't <laughs> take it when Spock died, he couldn't take it when Godzilla died. And actually, Toshi, how much do you love Star Trek?
3: I really like Star Trek. Yeah, I just like Star Trek a lot.
0: Out of the movies, which one do you watch the most now?
3: <sighs> That's hard. Maybe maybe Star Trek two? Wait, which movies are it, all of them or just the original movies?
1: What's your favorite part about Wrath of Khan?
3: Well, I really like watching the space battles and all that.
0: I agree. I think the space battles in that movie are hot. It's the first time they got that their naval battles, and they really shot them like naval battles in that movie.
1: Drew, would you believe me if I told you that Star Trek The Motion Picture actually made a little more money dom- domestically than 2 did? I would, because
0: the first one came out with a, a hype campaign that was almost unequaled. I think the biggest thing I'd ever seen before that point, marketing-wise, was Superman, but it was gigantic they sold the shit out of it
1: the star trek films were remarkably consistent i'll run through these real quick while you put your kid to bed uh star trek 82 million star trek 2 79 million star trek 3 76 million star trek 4 110 million people like those whales and then the weird part after part 4 which was the biggest one by far star trek 5 52 how does that happen?
2: Captain Kirk is climbing a mountain. Why is he climbing a mountain?
1: Um, all right, we're going to move on in this next one. Our next one is a wide release studio comedy starring a beloved actress we all love. I love Jane Wagner, and I love Lily Tomlin, and I love Jane Wagner and Lily
0: Tomlin working together, but The Incredible Shrinking Woman is a fucking hate crime.
2: This is the story of Pat Kramer. Pat's not quite herself these days. <laughs> Uh, She has this little problem that keeps getting littler. You might even call it an identity crisis. No one could find her. (laughs) Lily Tomlin is the incredible shrinking woman.
0: There are two totally different films at work here. One film, the one that Jane Wagner probably wrote and that Lily Tomlin had in her head, is not bad. And it's like Lily Tomlin is standing about three feet from you, trying to explain that movie to you quietly and rationally. And at the exact same time, Joel Schumacher is standing six inches from you,
1: screaming at you and whacking you with a piece of Joel Schumacher, a costume designer who was enlisted to be the director after John Landis left the project. It was his first directorial effort. It's easy to knock. Joel Schumacher. I knock Joel Schumacher because he has legitimately horrifying fucking taste as a filmmaker. For those who don't know, The Incredible Shrinking Woman is a comedic retelling of Richard Madison's classic story, which was told in a brilliant film in 1957. Uh,
0: Allegedly comedic
1: ostensibly comedic retelling of a classic tale about a woman who thanks to a collection of of household chemicals being combined finds herself shrinking 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 ever so uh, gradually uh, throughout the film and woe all the wackiness that ensues turn the image off just put the movie on turn
0: away from it here's what you're going to hear for two hours <laughs> it is a hodgepodge of horrible noise and people screaming and yelling and there's not one scene in this movie that plays
1: out like a scene. I'll give you that the tone is constantly manic where it should be pitched at a more even keel. Look, we could talk all day about, say, Steven
0: Spielberg and the way he took Robert Altman's kind of lead and then moved that into the suburban milieu and started figuring out, ah, if I shoot this where kids are talking over each other and there's stuff going on in the room and adults are having a conversation and there's four levels of sound happening, that's reality. That's what chaos actually sounds like in a house. Spielberg, when you listen to the way he does it in whether it's Jaws or... Close encounters. You, you, you or,
1: can't compare Altman and Spielberg to Joel
0: Schumacher. I'm talking about approach. I'm t- and I'm talking about the fact that clearly that informed the way everybody started trying to shoot domestic stuff. And in this movie, you see it. You see that attempt to okay, we're going to put all the kids around the table, and Charles Grodin's going to have this conversation, and Lily's going to have this conversation. It's going to go on, but instead of creating the authentic chaos of domestic life, what you have is this fucking barrage of empty sound and none of it lands. And as a result, none of the scenes play. There's not a scene in this movie that has a beginning, a middle and an end with a thematic point.
1: The thematic point is that Galaxy Glue will F you up and get you stuck in a garbage disposal.
0: Except they don't really land that. It could be anything, and they they make sure they never answer what it is, and they never really even try to get into the science. The science is a joke. Oh, it's, come
1: on, man. It's a farce.
0: It's like... it's like. But so what? I, I've seen plenty of great comedies that still work as movies, and this doesn't
1: work as anything. It's a sitcom version of Madison. It's all not, right. I think that's a
0: horrifying choice, and I think the material doesn't work at all as a farce or as a sitcom, and certainly there's no laughs to make up for the fact that the story doesn't work. There
2: are laughs. I don't think there's
0: any
1: laughs, and I literally, I. Watched if you criticize I, this movie one more time, I'm quitting this podcast, and we're done. This movie is photographed like someone wiped their dick on the camera lens. Wow. All right. You know what, though, Will you give it at least some credit for trying to do the hyper stylized suburbia prior to Tim Burton kind of mastering that hyper stylized suburbia in, say, Edward Tissor hands.
0: Okay, so they managed to capture a really ugly, vivid hue, but like, I look at how they try to include, say, Lily Tomlin's other characters, and they try to work in ways for her to play the neighbor and the the telephone operator. Not one of those adds anything to the movie. Her playing the neighbor doesn't inform anything, and it doesn't add anything. Her playing the telephone operator isn't funny. It's not a good cutaway.
1: And Charles Grodin, who we both have declared that we love Charles Grodin, he's a genius. He is lost here. So I'm assuming that you don't like the film once it devolves into Mark freak over the top coke head blank blankfield. You mean and, when there's a know,
0: gorilla on a skateboard flipping the bird? No, n- not a fan.
1: Rick Baker in the gorilla suit on a with, with the invisible with the shrinking woman around his collar. I admire Rick Baker. It doesn't make me like this movie even. I, I, remotely. No, I don't like any movie that has a gorilla in act three. I when in a couple years we'll get to trading places. I, I adore trading places, and that garbage with the gorilla in act three is so terrible. And I think they kind of got it from this movie. Uh it's time, Drew we've been looking forward to this for a long time on a distant planet
2: a great kingdom was ravaged by beings who came from the future to conquer the universe now the only survivors follow a doubtful seer and a throneless king Columbia Pictures presents a world apart from anything you have seen before.
1: Crow. Is that Liam Neeson? Sure is. Robbie Coltrane? Like, what? You, what what's going on here? It's got major problems, but there's <laughs> there's still a lot I like about this movie. Wait, major problems? You don't say. I've seen the movie at least four times over the course of my life. And I'm not exactly sure of the inciting incident.
0: Uh, The inciting incident is the uh, beast's castle lands and steals the girl from the wedding. It's your highness, basically.
1: So... I'm watching Kroll, and I'm like, oh, the web sequence. I remember this. This is really cool. And it still kind of holds up. And then another 15 minutes of, what was I thinking? And then there's a good chase or a good battle. And I'm like, yeah, this is what I liked. And the score is good. And there's, oh, that was a good. And then another 15 minutes with, where is this going? What am I watching?
0: I hate this movie. I think there's so many bad choices that it's almost hard to know where to unravel. Let's start with the bad guys. The Stormtroopers that spend the movie showing up, running away, showing up, running away.
1: Rising out of the water in a very photogenic fashion. They are well sculpted to look at. Those people never had a day of training
0: in those suits. Those fight scenes are fucking terrible. Terrible. There's scenes in this movie where when you look at the guy in the foreground and you look at any of the fights in the background, they're
1: laughable. They're ridiculous. They don't
0: know how to stand. They, they don't, know don't where
1: to- look at the background. Drew, you just solved the film's problem. If you don't like the background, well, it's, it's no tris- better in the foreground. The
0: staging of any of those fights, there's not one convincing piece of hand-to-hand combat in the movie. There's not a moment where the swords or any of the weaponry is interestingly used. And the movie spins an entire film building up to the use of a frisbee with knives on it that does
1: nothing. The Glaive was not supposed to be the hero of the film. It was his acquisition of said weapon that l- allowed Prince Colwyn to find his bravery. What is wrong yeah, with you? That was a terrible film.
0: I remember reading at the time about the money spent to develop The Beast. You build the entire movie to this thing that you're going to finally fight. A thing that they spent a million dollars, million and a half dollars to build. A thing that was underwritten by another corporation because it was so complicated. And when it finally shows up, they have to shoot it through a distortion filter and never actually show the suit because it's just a terrible animatronic sculpture that does nothing.
1: Maybe the original scope of the screenplay was that the beast was supposed to look like a misshapen lava lamp. Maybe you don't know, Drew. You weren't on set. It's a disaster. I find it interesting that we've done now almost 50 episodes, and the film that we've had the biggest disagreement on by far is a film that I once described as Zardoz Jr.,
0: Peter Yates, he's a terrific filmmaker who shouldn't have been making this kind of film. And when you read the interviews with him, this is the kind of filmmaking conversation that drives me crazy. I decided I wanted to doodle around in the fantasy pond a bit and just get my feet wet
1: and uh, see what it was like and uh, whatever. I... You do an amazing Peter Yates impression, or it sounds more like Terry Jones doing Spam. Yeah, no, it's,
0: that's exactly what he sounds like. Go look at an interview. It's crazy. Um, but no, it's baffling to me that you would make a film, any film, where you're just kind of dabbling in a genre for the sake of it, especially one as expensive and difficult and as, frankly, unfinished as Krull. Like, he knew going into it this thing didn't work on the page and just thought he'd improvise his way through the thing and figure it out as he went and...
1: Uh, if Krull is a stew, what are the ingredients? But no, King Arthur, not but Okay, well King Arthur and but. And Star Wars.
0: That's the other thing, is it's I wanna make a medieval movie. I wanna make a science fiction movie.
1: We'll, we'll do a little bit of both. <laughs> It's not – that's a good point. It's not exactly medieval. It's it's high fantasy, but then it starts to get into legit sci-fi for a little bit there. Clearly,
0: the beast is from another planet, and it's like – it's a sci-fi movie where they even talk about you'll rule the other worlds as well. We've got to talk about the other thing that drove me crazy in this viewing because I almost couldn't watch it again. I stopped and I reached out to Bobby because it was like, Bobby, this is going to drive me nuts. The theme to this film, the James Horner score to this film – is Remember Me from Coco?
5: Remember me. Though I have to say goodbye.
0: Remember me. Don't let it make you cry. And it's incessant. They play it over and over. So for the entire film, I'm here.
1: Remember me. Bum, 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 remember me. I'll throw the glaive and kill you now, but, uh, it's... Hey, wait, first off, impressions are your thing, songs are mine. Second of all, are you technically accusing the most Oscar-winning songwriter in the history of cinema of plagiarizing K. Roll?
0: Nope, but it's a horrifying
1: coincidence. All right, Drew. Now we're gonna go live to Gene Hackman in his agent's office. I'm Gene Hackman. Uh,
0: Gene, um, I, I I'm happy to see you. I,
1: I- yeah, Listen, listen. Uh, I don't do a good Hackman, but here's the thing: Dustin had Kramer versus Kramer, and John Voight got table for five. And I brought Al Pacino here. Uh, He did author, author. Uh, You got any more screenplays with kids in them? Al,
0: I'm not sure what Gene's talking about. Um, uh, Screenplays with kids. Listen, man. Dusty Hoffman did that thing with the kid, right? And that had nothing. One kid. One child. My movie had a whole lot of kids. I had kids coming out of my ears. I had so many kids in that film. We lost a few. Nobody knew it. But... I did it so good. You gotta wonder now why somebody wants last sloppy seconds. Just tell me the name of the project you have for him. Miss understood. I don't
2: know what to say to them. Tell them the truth, Andrew. What I want to say to you is not very easy. You should have told me. Academy Award winner Gene Hackman, E.T. star Henry Thomas, and Terms of Endearment newcomer Huckleberry Fox. Three performances you'll always remember in a film about love and understanding you'll never forget misunderstood rated pg
0: i want to use this as a transition into the next movie because our next movie is directed by a guy who by all accounts everybody loved and was a great dude and i have to say an officer and a gentleman hates women
2: richard gear is earning his wings the hard way you ready to quit now mayo it's up to Lewis Gussett Jr. to make him an officer. I got nowhere up the go! And up to Deborah Winger to make him a gentleman. I love you. Love Richard Gere, Deborah Winger, and Oscar winner Lewis Gussett Jr. in An Officer and a Gentleman, Sunday night at 5 on KPTV 12.
1: I think this movie is loathsome. I saw it in my 20s. Thought, yeah, okay, I could see why it's iconic. I see why people reference that scene. Yeah, you know, it was a big hit. Watched it a week and a half ago, and I thought, what the fuck were people thinking? Oh, it's gross,
0: man. This movie hates women. The entire film is. It's uh, Richard Gere plays a guy who was raised by a piece of garbage, a a military guy who would only every now and then show up. And he really didn't know him until he got to be a teenager. His mother died. He had to go live with his father, uh, Robert Loja. And right away, you see why he has zero good relationships with women. His dad like takes him to whorehouses. They live above a whorehouse in the Philippines. They get laid side by side. And I mean, the opening scene in this movie is Richard Gere getting up from what looks like a threesome with his father. Uh, mind-bogglingly gross. And then he joins the Navy because he wants out. He wants to be something better. He wants to be better than his father was. And so he moves to this small town where they have the Naval Trainee Program. And it's for everybody who's going to be an officer who wants to jump into the military at that level. So... All the drill instructor stuff in this movie with Lou Gossett Jr. Gossett's great, and he got Oscar nominated for this, and he does what he's supposed to. Deborah Winger, again, she can't play a false note. She's incapable of being anything but good in a movie. But the engine of this movie is that the women who live in this small town all want to trap an officer, marry him, and get out of this small town. So the movie is about this sort of transactional relationship where every woman in this movie wants to catch a man. You know, that iconic ending. You talk about why the ending is iconic. I think that ending is bullshit. That ending is the most unearned iconic ending of all time because he treats her like garbage all the way through the movie. He doesn't want a relationship. He makes it clear all it is is sex. They have zero actual, like, adult chemistry or any like real reason to be together he dumps her his friend kills himself and so even though there's no scene where they reconcile and there's no scene where he apparently changes his mind for any reason i guess he just decides "Eh, okay it's better than being alone and so he goes and grabs her out of the factory and the the moment that kills me is as he's picking her up to leave it cuts to the woman who had the pregnancy lost the pregnancy told David Key she didn't want to marry him because she only wanted a pilot and he had already dropped out of the program. He kills himself. She's standing there. Deborah Winger gets picked up. She looks at her friend and her friend says, and I quote, you did
1: it. Yeah, you did it. Fuck you. Fuck you and fuck your movie. The screenplay is written by Douglas Day Stewart. He wrote The Blue Lagoon, an officer and a gentleman thief of hearts. Listen to me. And The Scarlet Letter with Demi Moore. That's an impressive track record. I mean, impressive as in, how can you produce that consistently terrible films? And this is far and away his most accomplished film. Lou Gossett Jr., great. David Keith, quite good in a, in a small role. If people are angry that we don't like an officer and a gentleman, I am terrified to think of what will happen when we get to Top Gun.
0: If you want further proof that this movie really hates women, look at how they handle Lisa Eilbacher, who is the only female candidate in the uh, training program. I don't buy that an officer candidate seven weeks into their training is still crying while she's trying to climb a wall. But, you know, it's 1982 and she's a girl. So I guess that's what writing is. I hate this movie, and I really do think it's another case of a song that was so gigantic. Man, I'm sure people play this song at their weddings. I'm sure people will tell you what this song means to them and how emotional it is. What we see in this film is not adult love, and that last image of him carrying out of the factory, I guarantee they went somewhere, they had some sex, and their relationship imploded because they are awful human beings who don't deserve to be with anybody.
1: Male call!
0: All right, what trend in 80s films do you hate the most, and what trend would you like to see come back? This is Celtic Ray Filmworks asked this. Uh, one of the things that I'm most excited to revisit trend-wise as we go through these is the trend of movies where our American heroes fight side-by-side side with the heroic Taliban against the evil Russians. Because there's about six or seven movies where the Taliban are the good guys, and they're portrayed as like these rowdy rebels who they're going to hook up with America, and it's going to be awesome. And it's just one of those cases of, ooh, ooh, if you'd had a crystal ball, ooh,
1: Rambo might not have done that. <laughs> That's an interesting trend. I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, um, my trends with, that I dislike are pretty obvious. We'll get. We're soon approaching 1983, and 3D was temporarily rather prevalent, and we'll detail how ugly that was. But one thing that I like in the 80s that I wouldn't mind seeing make some sort of a comeback, and I don't know if there's much room for it in today's superhero-laden landscape, back in the day, we had Arnold, Sly, even Chuck Norris. And it would be nice if we could get back to that, uh, where we have five or six different action icons, and I certainly don't mean all men. You know, We have Jason Statham now, but do we have any Contemporary action icons that were like the 80s, Drew?
0: I think the closest is The Rock, who is a cartoon that is self made. And I think that's what Arnold and Sly and those guys were. You know, we talked about the fact that when we were watching Rocky 3 recently, I felt dirty watching how Sly was shooting Sly. Like, he's really into himself. And I think in the 80s, we did. We had a couple of big icons that were cartoons. And I think there's always a space for that. It really depends on. Um, what projects there are out there for them. And you look back at the filmography of some of these guys, and really they're limited by the material, not by them. And then there's other guys who you could have given Chuck Norris every great script that ever existed, and he was never going to be more than Chuck Norris.
1: Uh, and I'm not saying I necessarily want a return of uh, assembly line action generic junk, uh, but I, I like having a handful of action stars that are you know reliable, who will turn out a movie or two a year. That was fun, even though a lot of the a lot, if you go back and look at them, a lot of their just their normal programmer B-level movies are, are pretty dull. They're just not all that great.
0: One of the things that I would like to see a return from, and it really didn't start until I, I think Die Hard is the moment where everything changed. And it's almost a reaction to what you're talking about with Sly and Arnold and guys that were cartoon superheroes. I miss human beings in action movies, human beings who can get fucked up and who can get hurt and who are terrified. And even in like Transformers, look at Shia LaBeouf running around the edges of buildings and jumping off things and sliding around it. And, and physics don't seem to work for him. And, and he never really gets hurt in anything. And, and I think in every action film now, even if you're meant to be the standard guy character,
1: you're doing super heroic stuff and you're withstanding super heroic abuse. The best thing about Die Hard is when you notice how much his feet are bleeding. That's not normal for a quote unquote action movie hero. That's what makes John McClane so damn cool is that, you know, deep down he's not going to die because you are watching an action film. But by making him a human being who bleeds and struggles and sweats and suffers, you raise the stakes. People now relate to him more.
0: I'm always entertained when the hero of the movie catches a beating. And I have a real soft spot for any movie where by the end of the film, our hero Looks like a can of dog food, like just dumped out on a plate, just ruined by what he's gone through. I, I love mean, yeah, that. Yeah, okay.
1: Superman is great in a Superman context, but you know, if you're dealing with terrorists in a skyscraper, it's much more interesting, obviously, to have a character who can bleed and and be injured. I,
0: I think that's very, I, and I I would love to see a return to that.
1: And we are now going to end with a film that is. The reason we wanted to do this in the first place. Yeah, this is one of the movies that inspired this podcast. What am I? I'm
3: Popeye the Sailor. Popeye. Da 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 yumbida olive, yumbida olive oil. Yumbida yumbida Pluto. Yumbida Luto, yumbida Wimpy. Yumbida the Commodore. And Sweet Pea. Popeye!
2: Popeye? Popeye? I live. I'm Popeye I'm
1: Popeye the All your favorite characters Popeye. Popeye. come alive in Popeye. Popeye. It yam what it am. You, Drew, true or false, this film was a box office bomb. I will say this. It was critically reviled.
0: I even remember Pauline Kale, who was up Robert Altman's ass as far as a critic can be up a filmmaker's ass. She said, this doesn't work. It just lays there. It's not good. And I remember the critical response was a drubbing. He got his ass kicked.
1: But I have done my research as a, as a guy who loves the movie. It, it did decent money. It just that it was a it was a co-production between Disney and Paramount, which meant that they, they had to split a big pot and they all expected it to do better. As was Dragon Slayer. Yeah, and it did make its money back. Uh, and by this point, as it's being a cult classic, I, I'm sure it's made its money. But I don't really care about how much it made. I don't care if it stands out as a major bomb. I like this movie. I get all the complaints. I get the Pauline Kael. It just lays there that it's weird and, and, and strange and uh, misshapen. And it doesn't even really have like much of a structure to it. To a, the random and episodic and all over the place. I don't care. I like the production design. I love the songs. I like the cast. I like that it's weird. And I think it captures the spirit of the original comic strip pretty darn well. I I, I get that people think it's ugly and dreary looking. Fine. I think it's evocative. I think it's nifty. I think it's cool. Anybody who grew up on Popeye cartoons has to agree in the pantheon of comic book movies— Shelley Duvall Olive Oil has to be one of the best pieces of casting you could possibly imagine. It's ri- it's
0: ridiculous. And she is made of rubber in the film. Like you watch her arms and legs and the physical performance she gives. The fact that you have guys like Bill Irwin who are just background in this movie and their whole job is to contribute to the comic book atmosphere. What works about it is exactly that. Bill Irwin's a cartoon anyway. He's a genius. Like if you've ever seen a phys- his physical work on stage or you've seen his uh, Fool's Moon or any of the, the live shows. He's a genius, and and he absolutely contributes to that feeling that you're in a cartoon world. There's so many little beautiful touches. I love when Bluto opens the door. Popeye and Olive Oil are standing there together with Sweet Pea, and he gets mad, and you go to the red, and it's not a filter. They painted the set red. They painted the costumes red, and everything was actually turned red for one second. That dedication to getting cartoon reality to happen is what I think Altman did so beautifully. And I love the Nelson songs. Love, 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 love.
3: And all at once I knew, I knew at once, I knew he needed me.
1: There's a reason that Paul W.S. Anderson used some of them in, in uh, Punch Drunk Love. When I talk about the hype stuff, I had the soundtrack for this. I had the making of book for this. I had the
0: script book for this, which was just the photos from the film. I absolutely was 100% on board even before it hit theaters. I knew the album already pretty well by that point. And then I saw the movie.
1: And then one of the shutters on the, the windows open, the sun comes in and the song Sweet Haven kicks in. Sweet. From that moment on, that to me is as beautiful as any musical moment ever. You could put it up against Singing in the Rain or Grease, whatever musical really moves you. There are moments in Popeye that move me that much.
0: I also think this is the first, you know, it's very, very early in Robin Williams' film career. It, at this point, he was still the lunatic wild man from Mork and Mindy, and people didn't quite know what to do with him yet. I, I think it's a brave piece of casting by Altman, and I think it pays off in the fact that the sweetness that Williams brings to his relationship with Olive and especially to Sweet Pea because Sweet Pea completes him in a way that he's missing. The whole movie is he's looking for Poopneck Pappy who abandoned him and he feels broken because of it. He finds Sweet Pea. Yeah. And Ray Walston, who is phenomenal and has one of the great numbers in the film when he finally shows up and sings about kids. Walston's great and from a different era. But I love that Popeye, that you take something this outrageous, and yet you grounded it in something as genuinely beautiful as Popeye simply wants to be connected to somebody. And when he finds Sweet Pea, here's somebody who needs him the way he always wanted someone to take care of him. And so he can be that. And that's beautiful. And Williams actually plays it. It's not a joke. It's not thrown away. It's really enormously sweet throughout the entire film. And I think that the film earns real
1: tears from from the way it drops the stuff at the end that the family stuff connects it really works half of this is nostalgia we loved Popeye when we were kids so you can never fully separate that but I honestly believe that in most of the cases of these films like a seems like old times or a flash Gordon and a Popeye if I had never seen these films and I watched them the night I would not love them as much but I would still like them I truly believe that I
0: think this one in particular is one that age has been very kind to I think the song's they really didn't sound like anything else that anybody was doing in 1980. I can understand that they must have just sounded like they were from outer space. But now, because they aren't disco and because they aren't contemporary and they're not pinned to 1980, I think the songs have a real timelessness to them that has made the film
1: feel fresh even now. Good point. Very true. Good point.
0: And I think Nilsson stuff is wildly emotional. He Needs Me is a gorgeous piece of musical film where somebody is singing their heart and that's what great musicals do.
1: Let us now wrap up with one of the year's biggest hits, a film that literally everybody in the universe loves. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. He's the new kid in town, and the music's on his side. Let's dance! Footloose. Mount Pictures presents Footloose. The year is 1984. You just walked out of the theater. I say, hi, my name's Scott Weinberg. And you say, hi, hi, new best friend. What did you think of Herbert Ross's Footloose? And you would have said, uh, yeah, it was pretty fun. That was pretty cool. Uh, no, if it was me in 1984, I would have jumped onto your face like a howler monkey and said, I loved that movie. I thought it was smart and deep and meaningful and... It's not. It's not about any of those things. It's just about selling a soundtrack.
0: Okay, this is interesting because when I walked out of it in 1984, I would have said to you, really made use of that soundtrack. And boy, that ending really knew what the fuck it was doing. Uh, That was, that ending is confident.
1: That ending, man. If you ever want to see three six-foot-four white guys doing worm and rake dancing, then yeah, Footloose has the best finale I've ever seen.
0: I want to do a bonus episode with you where we're going to pick the ten best final scenes of the 80s, not for how they work for us as personal film viewers, but for pushing an audience out the door going, I, everybody in the world should go see that movie.
1: The movie is about a kid who wants to put on a dance in a town where Moody John Lithgow won't allow them to have the dance. And then at the end, 15 people gather in a barn and dance. And glitter is thrown, and then the credits roll. The opening credits have more of a pulse than the final sequence of this movie. You are... So high, you are so wrong. I do. I am not high when we record this show. I will be high in about fifteen minutes. Damn you! One hundred percent wrong about that.
0: But I will say the opening credits are just as important to the overall success
1: of this film. This and- movie is literally somebody looked at Flashdance and they went, "All right, we need a gender switch version, and we need it to be as facile as possible. It needs to be as deep as an Oingo Boingo video. It needs to be as plot heavy." as a three and a half minute music video about an hour into the movie. He changes his mind for no good reason. Oh, Diane Weiss oh, is his wife. Not, w- what a waste.
0: That's not true that there's no reason. It's not a deep reason, but the reason is because eventually he has to thaw about the death of his son.
1: There's so much wrong about this movie. Dean Pritchard wrote this movie. This guy is a composer. He wrote fame. He went around to composers and had them write songs That would be themed that to fit into the theme of this movie. And then he literally built the screenplay around the songs. And as beloved as this film is, you can tell that the screenplay was an afterthought.
0: I would argue you can tell that the screenplay is a jigsaw puzzle where it's like, okay, I've got this song, so I need to build a scene around that song. And it's a jigsaw puzzle. He
1: built a five minute tractor shit chicken sequence. Two idiots sitting on tractors. The camera cuts from one tractor to the other. And the music is blaring as if you're watching the raid Two. It's unbelievable how sloppy and silly it is. This is a guy who was born in Hawaii. And now he's a, he's a Broadway composer and he's writing a movie that takes place in Ohio ostensibly in 1984 This movie feels like it was supposed to take place in 1951. Oh, it's super cornball, dude. But but no, this was dated when it came out. Nobody in the 80s acted like well, this. Well,
0: that's not true, though. The satanic panic was happening. And there was the, you were absolutely seeing a rise of the, the DMRC wanted to put the record label. Uh, you know, there was the pushback against Two Life Crew. The 80s were very afraid of pop music again in a way that the 50s had been. And this movie actually got a little bit ahead of that because it started to really didn't play out in pop culture in real life. And we will see the rise of, maybe this rock and roll is fucking our kids up again. It's the Reagan 80s, man.
1: The only good song on this soundtrack is by Quiet Riot. Wow! Where in this film is there one impressive piece of dancing? One. You can have that conversation with Herbert Ross.
0: And the reason that I do think this film works, and the reason that I'm in a very different place than you, and surprised a little bit at how we crisscrossed here, because like Footloose was not a big deal to me. But I got it because it is incredibly simple about how it wants to make you happy. And that's Herbert Ross as a dancer, as a guy who his whole life is dance and his films largely are about dancing. We've talked about how much we love Pennies for Heaven. Pennies for Heaven is a terrific film in which when he shoots dance and emphasizes dance, he does it in a very particular way. We talked about that Chris Walken dance scene, and that is one of the best directed pieces of dance from the 80s. Just in terms of understanding, I want to see this performer's whole body. I want to see what he's doing. And I know how to shoot what he's doing to sell every bit of why this dance is great. And he does none of that. I disagree with you. The opening scene of this film is about one thing, feet. And from the very beginning, when he plays that song, it's just feet and that beat. And some of those people are terrible dancers. It's not about whether they're good or not. It's about the joy of the doing it. Chris Penn is most of the people watching this film. They can't dance. Chris Penn couldn't dance when he started making this movie. And I would argue Chris Penn couldn't dance when he finished making this movie. Chris Penn looks like a bear who has been trained to dance. But
1: uh, one of the best things in the film, I will give you that.
0: He also looks like he's having the fucking time of his life while he's doing it. And that is what this movie is about more than actual good dancing. Herbert Ross can shoot a dance scene that would fucking knock your socks off. And he's done it. And he's proven that what he's doing in this movie is different. This movie is about a town where dancing has literally been repressed. So when people are allowed to dance again, They don't know how when that final dance scene comes up and they get into that dance circle and you're saying there's not a good dance move in that scene, but look at them. Look at how happy they are. Look at the joy and the energy of that sequence. And it's weird because I would have been less generous in the eighties than you would have been. And I think I'm way more generous to it now than you are. All right. Okay. So we're done. That's it. So thanks everybody. And. Oh, is it time? That's right, ladies and gentlemen.
2: He makes discoveries. Enemies. Even a few mistakes. But that's what makes life interesting. Hi, For Indiana Jones. Harrison Ford.
5: Oh, Indy.
2: Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Rated Fiji.
0: I'm so excited. You and I have had conversations about this movie on and off for years. I don't want to put you in the position of feeling like you are anti Temple of Doom because you're not. But I think you and I land different places on where it lands in the overall indie pantheon and for Spielberg as a filmmaker.
1: This movie makes a lot of really bad choices when it is dealing with Indiana Jones himself and the action. It's a classic. There's very few films that can touch the spectacle and the choreography and the set pieces of this movie, the fights, the chases, is some of the best action I've ever seen. When the action is not happening, it's alternately a dull and ugly movie. I think that's a fair assessment. I will counter
0: by saying that I think this is a more honest reflection of the pulp roots of Indiana Jones than Raiders is, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom is fascinating because I think it may be one of the more revealing and personal movies Steven Spielberg ever made. Accidentally, I don't think it started that way. I think it ended up becoming that. And I also think it is a very honest reflection of its pulp roots. Pulp depended on a lot of crazy stereotypes about the world. There was the Western world we knew, and then there was the rest of the world that was crazy and exotic and anything could happen. In particular, there was a fascination with India that we didn't inherit. It really wasn't our generation's thing. But because of stuff like Gunga Din and because of sort of the pop culture for the, the generation that made Temple of Doom, I think this is their reflection back on those things that they grew up on. It's not based in reality. That's for sure. That is not the way India really is. But it is the way the Pope world represented India and I do think that's what they're doing. I think they're making a movie about that.
1: I think that's giving screenwriters Gloria Katz and Willard Hike, perhaps a bit more credit than they deserve. I think that the marching orders were, let's try and make this a little darker. So to me, it feels like a kid told a great joke and then the kid tried to push it and get a little dirty. And that joke didn't go over quite as well. It feels like. They said, let's let's make it a little rough or a little tougher, but instead just made it a bit uglier. Now, this is interesting because we're not this is not a 16 candle situation in which I'm applying 2018 perspectives to a 1984 film. In 1984, I thought, why am I, I don't like that he's whipping children. I didn't like that. I thought it was mean and ugly. That wasn't what I was hoping for from a Raiders of the Lost Ark sequel. I cannot stand Willie Scott. I cannot stand her. Don't tell me she's supposed to be a parody of the Wailing Damsel. If she's supposed to be a parody, she's... Playing it exactly to the nth degree. Every time she's on screen, I just wanted her to go away.
0: I don't think she's a parody, but I do think she is the opposite of Marion Ravenwood. And I think that's 100% by design. I think they knew that if they tried to simply replace Marion, it would be less successful. And he doesn't end up with Willie Scott. We know that because she's I gone by of the I don't care Ark. if he ends up with her or not. I have to spend two hours with her. I get it. I. She's meant to be annoying. I don't think, and I don't think it's a parody. I just think she's meant to be annoying. She's the last person you want to have on your adventure. She's the last person who's prepared to have your adventure. And at every point, she is a hindrance to your All right, adventure. But
1: if I stick a pencil in your ear for two hours and you say that's annoying and I say, well, it was supposed to be annoying. It's like, do I have to deal with this ugliness and this garish racial stereotypes? Do I have to deal with this woman shrieking in my ear and being like the most facile idiot possible? You know, I my first response
0: response this was I was a little irritated by short round the first time around. I didn't think Indy needed a kid. There was a conscious decision that they were not going to make the same adventure the next time. And I do think that there is something that happens in this movie that doesn't happen in Raiders, which is we actually see a change in Indiana Jones in this movie. As a character he goes from being utterly self-motivated at the beginning of this film to somebody that does something heroic at the end of this that has nothing to do with his game. What I eventually ended up really liking and what I like more as I get older is I like that it is short round who ultimately turns Indy around and their relationship in this movie is so good. Ultimately the conversation about this film, what is interesting when this was made, there were so many things going on behind the scenes that I think bleed through into the tone of this movie. These were some unhappy dudes making this movie. You've got to remember, Spielberg's going through a wicked divorce at this point. You've got to remember that George Lucas is going through a wicked divorce at this point. You've got to remember the Twilight Zone accident just happened, and Frank Marshall literally can't go back to the United States. And Spielberg's not too sure he can either. This is a moment where these guys, for the first time since they were anointed as the new Hollywood gods, suddenly found themselves in a totally different place than they thought they were just two years earlier. They were on top of the world and suddenly they're getting kicked in the nuts nonstop. So the darkness in this film, Spielberg has even talked about this, that he looks at this movie now and has trouble looking at it because everything else is what he sees. And Lucas is a little bit the same way. And they've they've apologized to some degree for this film. I don't think they're apologizing for the movie I think they're apologizing
1: because so much of what they were feeling is in this movie. We do want to include our good friend and correspondent, longtime film writer, Eric Vespi, who is a desperately passionate fan of this the movie. Biggest fan of the and film. And we promised him that he could inv- insert his two cents. So over to you, Eric. hi it's eric vespe i am very
5: grateful to be here to talk about one of my all-time favorite movies indiana jones and the temple of doom there's something about it that always stuck with me and it took me years and years and years of analyzing the movie and asking myself why is this my favorite i recognize raiders is the best but temple of doom was always the one that i would go back to and i was asking myself why and i think i figured it out i narrowed it down to two things one I love the fact that Spielberg and Lucas decided to go in the exact opposite way, to give you something you weren't expecting. That's one of the reasons why I really like Last Crusade, but it's not at the same level for me because it feels like they were chasing Raiders with that movie. And Temple of Doom, they are absolutely not. They are going aesthetically in the complete opposite direction. Marion is the exact opposite of Willie. Short Round is not Sala even as a kid, I really appreciated that. And I appreciate that even more as an adult, that they were trying to give us something different. They were trying to continue that pulp storytelling and giving it a different light. You know, I've also always been a big horror movie fan. So the fact that, you know, it's Indiana Jones in a horror setting always worked for me. But the, the other aspect of it that I really kind of grabbed onto when I started examining it closely was that, you know, the movie's a prequel. It's kind of a stealthy prequel. They don't make a big deal about it, but that suddenly clicked something into place for me and that's when we meet indy at the beginning of this movie he is belloc he opens the movie not only does he straight up kill fools you know at the beginning of the movie he skewers a dude but he is there to exchange an artifact for a diamond fortune and glory is uh, something that's said multiple times throughout the movie that's what he's pursuing When he's pursuing the Mystical Rocks, the Shankara Stones, he is not doing that for the benefit of the village. It's because it's fortune and glory. He gets the recognition for it. And so when you look at it that way, this is the movie where Indiana Jones becomes Indiana Jones. And that is the thing that took me from like guiltily loving the movie to unapologetically loving the movie. Because I love that you see him go from Belloc to Indy there's a very specific scene where that happens and I make note of it every time I watch it and that's the scene where he comes out of the the dark sleep he saves Willie he saves short round and then they're like "All right, let's get out of here he has everything he wants he has the stones he has everything but there's still the slave children down there
3: Indy now let's get out of
5: here right all of us that, to me, is the moment he becomes Indiana Jones. To me, that's the birth of the Indiana Jones character that I love. Uh, you know, It's a silly movie, but it's also Spielberg kind of at the height of his craft. And so for those reasons, I can't ever write off Indiana Jones, and I will fight to my last <laughs> desperate dying breath uh, for this movie. And uh, I hope I have some of you guys in my
1: corner on this one. That guy, man, he he's awful. Oh. I love he's, Eric. He's terrible to everyone. Come on, admit it. Everyone oh, hates him. Oh, the meanest. Just the meanest. Unpleasant to be around. He doesn't know anything about movies. What I love is that his
0: love of this movie, it's when I started writing film criticism, one of the things that was important to me is there were movies that I had, had hip pocketed since I was a kid that I felt it was important to help renovate their critical standing. Movies like Conan the Barbarian, where I'm like, I, this was not well liked critically, but God damn it, I'm going to do my part. And I feel like this movie was Eric's project from day one. From when I met him, he wanted more respect for this film. It's fascinating
1: to me, his love for it. I, I totally get if Indiana Jones is your favorite. No, I don't. If If you think Temple of Doom is better than Raiders. Well, I definitely don't think that. But I do think it's better than
0: Crusade. And we'll have that argument 89, my friend.
1: You think Temple of Doom is better than Last Crusade? Oh, by leaps and bounds. Oh, my goodness gracious. Uh, that will be an interesting conversation. But I would like to thank everybody who has joined us for this long quest. Uh, everybody who has uh, subscribed to the Patreon, thank you. We are very uh, uh, grateful and appreciative. And we hope you spread the word. And we'll be back in two weeks.
0: Thank you. Thank you for the support. And thank you for the uh, the constant feedback that you give us.
3: Yahoo! You're all the player, kid! Three times, kid!
2: That was one in a million! Remember... The boss will be
5: with you. Always. Goodbye, shithead. <laughs>